grab a Bible, we are going to be in God's Word, uh, which is a good place to be, especially as we're talking about peace here. Uh, We're going to be in the first 10 verses of the last chapter of the book of Acts. Acts 28, verses 1 through 10. I can't believe we're at the last chapter of Acts. Uh, Last week, we saw how God sovereignly protected Paul through all sorts of stuff, hardships, difficulties, storms at sea, contrary winds, ultimately a shipwreck. Uh, to safely deliver him and the rest of those fellow passengers, all 276 passengers, to a small island where they could winter for the winter months, which is when you don't want to be on the sea, awaiting their final voyage to Rome, which we'll look at next week. So this week, we, we get to see how God continued to work in and through Paul, his, his representative, his apostle, his sent one, as he waited out those winter months on the island of Malta. So again, Paul's in a waiting room, so to speak, but God's still at work in and through him and around him. And that's one of the major takeaways from from this passage. So speaking of storms and cold and winter, uh, we went last week with some of y'all to see the Follow the Star experience. Um, And thank you, Bellingtons, for bringing hot chocolate to that in your wagon. Um, But it was like, it was raining, it was cold. Uh, I felt okay because I had like four layers on, as did my kids. So none of us were complaining. But basically, the Follow the Star experience, it's Good Shepherd Lutheran Church up in Cedar Park. And they, the whole church family pitches in and they all do these live action sequences through the life of Christ. And so it starts with the announcement of his birth all the way to his ascension back into heaven to to be seated at the right hand of the Father. So there's 10 scenes and there's hundreds of people on cast and they're all in period dress, meaning like they would look basically how they would look in the first century. Okay, so I really enjoyed it. It was it was great to walk through with the kids. I was comfortable. However, when we got to the scenes with the older Jesus, like the road to the cross and, and the, the, the basically the, the beatings and the crucifixion. He was not in like comfy, warm layers, okay? And we all kind of felt bad for him. Like there was a lot of pity for, for those. And there was multiple men playing that role, but seemed very cold uh, indeed. But anyway, regardless, even with the cold, I think they did a great job and we really enjoyed it. Um, but as I was walking through those scenes, I was reflecting on it. We were just there on Thursday. I was thinking about the life of Jesus and a couple things struck me that I want to share with you guys this morning. So first, it struck me that, that, that God would send his son into the world as a vulnerable baby. It makes me think that God took a huge risk in doing that. Doesn't it? Like, really? Wouldn't that seem risky to like send your son to save the world as a vulnerable baby in a manger? With a pregnant mom going 100 plus miles on a donkey, if that's indeed what happened, right? So I thought, man, that seems really risky. But then I reflect on what I know from Scripture about our God, and God doesn't risk. Like, our God is sovereign. He, he's not like rolling the dice to see, mm, maybe, uh, maybe this will go the way I want it to. He knows exactly what he's doing, and he doesn't risk in the sense that we talk about risking. And so Jesus, as he grew up, he knew the will of his father. And that's why he was able to walk through life so confidently. Do you ever wonder, like, man, why don't I look more like Jesus in my confidence? And it's not an arrogant confidence. It's a humble-hearted, fully dependent on God confidence. 
And I think the reason that Jesus was able to walk through life so confidently is because he knew that nothing could stop the redemptive plan of God. He knew that nothing could thwart God's plans. And God's plans for the redemption of the world, for our salvation, meant that he had to suffer at a specific time, in a specific way, and die at a specific time, in a specific way, to accomplish all that God had promised and foretold in the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. He knew that. And he knew nothing is going to mess that up. Nothing is going to frustrate God's plans. And so he was able to walk through that life, his life on earth and ministry with great confidence. And I think similarly, faith allows us to walk through life with confidence in God, knowing that, that there's no dangers, there's no difficulties, there's no demons, there's no disease, there's not even death itself can stand in the way or frustrate the plans of God. And, and I think as I look through church history, even in the Old Testament, as I look through Israelites, faithful Israelites, countless saints have acknowledged exactly this, what we're talking about. And as a result, they've known the peace of Christ in some of the most brutal and crushing and distressing circumstances imaginable. And when we read their biographies and we read these stories, even in the book of Acts itself, and we go, how did they have peace in the midst of these crushing circumstances? This is how they had peace. They knew that God's will would be done, and they were following Jesus to do his will. But, listen, here's our fallen condition thing that we wrestle with. If we fail to see that God is working through us also, then we will also lack that Christ-like confidence that we see in so many people's lives, and particularly in Jesus's. So today's passage is going to use references to hands. I love it. Two different times it's going to refer to hands, and specifically the hands of Paul the Apostle. And this is to remind us that like Paul, Christ is working through all Christians everywhere to accomplish his purposes, to accomplish his will, including every single one of you that's bowed the knee to Christ. And as that saying goes, and we sing it in songs, we are the hands and feet of Christ. Maybe add to that the voice uh, and everything else. Of Christ, but we are the hands and feet of Christ. Do you know what that means? It means that Jesus physically is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. He's left us here, as he prayed in John 17, to be his hands and feet, to be Christ to the world and to one another. So our big idea today is that we are indeed the holy hands of Christ, so we should expect his protection and his power. We are the holy hands. Holy, meaning set apart for God's purposes. We are the holy hands of Christ. All of us individually as Christians and together as the church. So we should expect protection and power. So, first of all, if we're the holy hands of Christ, then we should expect God's protection, right? Just like Jesus, we can trust that nothing is going to thwart the plans of God. And we've seen this throughout the book of Acts, but we see it especially in the first part of today's passage. And think about all the different times we've seen people trying to thwart God's plan. And, and we're even told in the book of Acts that, that the, uh, the, the work of Satan to bring about the murder of Jesus through ungodly men actually accomplished the will of God in bringing salvation to the world. So it's like nobody can juke God, right? Like he, he, he works and he accomplishes his plans and his purposes, and nothing can thwart that. And we see that in today's passage. In verses 1 through 4, we see that saints might indeed, uh, might, 
saints will face dangers and difficulties in this life. Can I get an amen? Are we an amen church yet? Amen, right? Saints don't have these perfect, scrubbed-down, glossy lives that nothing bad happens. Like, we are going to face dangers and difficulties. And first, in our passage, it was the storms, and then it was the shipwreck, and now today it's a serpent, a snake, a venomous snake. So the first four verses say, When they, that's the passengers of the shipwreck, had been brought safely through, then we found out that the island was called Malta. The natives showed us extraordinary kindness. That's a theme in this that we're not going to talk about today, but the hospitality and kindness of these people. For they kindled a fire and took us all in because of the rain that had started and because of the cold. Verse 3, But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. When the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began saying to one another, Undoubtedly, this man is a murderer, and though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. In other words, he got what's coming to him. So notice how the locals think that Paul must be a bad person because they see something bad happening to him in his life. Do you see that? That one-to-one correlation? Hey, something's bad happening to you. You must be a bad person getting what you deserve. And I just want to say here, aren't we all guilty of that? I mean, I remember when I first moved down here to, to plant a church, a fellow Austin church planter died suddenly. And I didn't know him really well, but he was right in the middle of starting a brand new church, doing the Lord's work. And you know what my first thought was? I wonder what kind of hidden sin was there that caused that to happen. Now, I'm not proud that my mind goes there, but in our fallen situation, that's what we do. We see bad things happen. We go, gosh, they must be getting what they deserve. They must be bad people. I wonder what was behind the curtains in that situation, right? But this is in direct opposition to that kind of logic. And that's where Job's friends missed the mark. You remember when Job's friends just were quiet and sat with him with an arm around him, silent for a couple days? They were great friends. But then they opened their mouths and started talking about, you better check, uh, you know, your dirty laundry. You know, something's, something's off. You need to figure that out and repent of it because that's why you're facing all this hardship and difficulty. Thinking that all difficulties are a, di- a direct result of God judging our personal sin. And again, we do that too. And the truth is that saints, that God's people will face dangers in this life just like everyone else. We don't get an exemption in this life on this earth from dangers. But look, in verses 5 and 6, we see that despite the dangers that we will inevitably face, saints need not fear death. We of all people in this world need not fear death, physical death or eternal death for that matter. So look at verse 5. However, Paul shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. Now they, that's the locals, were expecting that he was going to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and began to say that he was a god. (laughs) You see how fickle we can be? So Paul expected to be protected. He wasn't worried about it because he hadn't reached Rome yet. Jesus Christ had promised him, you are going to get to Rome to be my witness in Rome. 
He had not gotten there yet, and he knew that if Jesus says we're going to cross this stormy sea, I'm going to take a nap because I trust that we're going to make it the other side. The disciples, we're all going to freak out thinking we're going to drown. Okay, that's how it works. But Paul knew that he still needed to get to Rome, so he kept his cool knowing that his hands, his whole person, but that his hands were holy to the Lord and that, that God's handiwork wasn't yet fully accomplished through him yet. And, and he did experience divine protection, and that led these locals to believe that Paul himself must have been one of the gods. Because, you know, a lot of people in those days, the first century Greco-Roman, they believed in a pantheon of gods. So like, hey, you didn't die. We expect you to die. You must be one of the gods. And you know what? They were right to recognize the presence of divinity, of deity. But they were wrong in attributing that divinity, that deity to Paul himself who is really just the chosen instrument of God. And likewise, if we are the holy hands of Christ, then we should expect his divine protection as he works through us to accomplish his purposes. Uh, At the end of Mark's gospel, there's an addition. It's called the longer ending. I believe Mark's gospel originally stopped at verse 8. If you go to your Bibles, you're going to see a little bracketed section at the end of Mark 16. And uh, uh, some of uh, the later manuscripts have a part in there that's added on, several verses. Uh, And and basically, it's like an overview of the Acts of the Apostles. It's like a little bitty summary of of the book of Acts. And so at the end of of Mark, you'll see that bracketed section. uh, There is is some verses in there that basically describe Paul's experiences, several of Paul's experiences, as well as some other Christians in the early church. And so I want to read that to you. Again, I personally do not believe that this is the inspired word of God, these verses, okay? And that's why they're in brackets in your Bible. If you want to talk to me about that and the inspiration of Scripture, if this troubles you, come talk to me. We can talk about it, okay? Um, It need not trouble you. But anyway, I want to read this. I would never preach a sermon out of this, by the way. These signs will accompany those who have believed. This is Mark chapter 16, verses 17 and 18. In my name they will cast out demons. We've seen that. They will speak with new tongues. We've seen that. They will pick up serpents. We're seeing that today. And if they drink any deadly poison, it will not harm them. They will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. We're going to see that in a little bit. So sadly, this disputed longer ending to the Gospel of Mark, some fringe groups, particularly in North America, particularly in uh, uh, Appalachia, have misinterpreted and misapplied these verses from the story, really ultimately looking back to the story that we're looking at today of Paul's snakebite and then this disputed passage at the end of Mark. And now we have whole networks of churches who practice snake handling as a supposed proof of the quality of our faith in God. And, And there's, like I said, networks of churches that do this But it's supposed to show how confident we are in the fact that God is going to protect us from harm. And somehow that's supposed to prove our faith. And I think I've got an image, actually. It's this. Oh, I don't. Ah, I could act it out. You want me to do it? I was I was joking with. um, I forgot who I said this to. Some. Oh, oh, it was uh, uh, Catherine. Catherine helps with our search engine optimization. And we signed up for Google AdWords, and she sent me, do you know what a negation list is? Does anybody nerd out on that stuff? Or SEM, or whatever it's called? 
Anyway, you go in there and, and Google tells you what people search for on Google associated with your search, like Wayside. <laughs> and so it lists all these things that we're not, like Roman Catholic or, you know, whatever. Uh, but one of them is snake handling. And so somebody out there searched Wayside Austin snake handlers or something like that. <laughs> and so I sent it back together. I was like, yeah, just negate that one. We don't need to pull, they don't need to see our church if they search for Wayside snake handling. Um, and I joked with her because I used to be in charge of the, uh, for our Cub Scout troop that met in here. We met in this same room uh, with the boys when they were younger. And I was in charge of like getting the snake guy every year, you know? So I had to call the snake guy and he came in here with like all these venomous snakes and stuff like that he showed the kids. And, and so I joked with Kath and I was like, I mean, I have handled snakes in the cafeteria at Laurel Mountain, so... I don't know, maybe there. Maybe you should leave that one in there. Anyway, sorry, that was an aside. Um, uh, so that's not what today's passage is teaching us, that we should all go handle venomous snakes to prove our incredible faith in the protective power of God over our lives. I'm not even going to have to explain that much more. You guys understand that. This is not about us seeking out danger in order to prove something about the quality of our faith. It's about the confidence that we can have in Christ as we seek to do his will despite the dangers we will face. Do you see the difference? It's not us just flagrantly saying, well, I'm not going to wear a seatbelt. You know, God's going to protect me. Like, that's not the point, right? Uh, Satan did that to Jesus. Remember when Satan says, hey, look at this verse in the Bible. Doesn't it say God's going to protect you that you could fall and the angels will pick you up so that not even your foot touches a stone? He quotes scripture there. And he doesn't quote the next verse that talks about treading on the head of the serpent, right? But he quotes scripture and Jesus rebukes him with scripture and says, yeah, but it also says in Deuteronomy, you're not supposed to put the Lord God to the test. And so you're not supposed to do what these guys are doing with snakes in Appalachia, okay? Uh, if we are the holy hands of Christ, then we should expect his protection against anything that might thwart us from accomplishing his will, including snakes, okay? Uh, and there are a few really good applications, I think, in this first part of our passage. First of all, we need to acknowledge that saints suffer too, not just unbelievers, Please don't tell someone, hey, if you just trust in Jesus, you'll never have to suffer ever again in this life. You'll never face any more difficulties or hardships. Okay? Don't do that to people. All right? Um, saints suffer too. The truth is, unless Jesus comes back first, everyone and every one of us will face physical death at the end of this life, however long this life is. Guys, I don't want to shy away from that truth. Right? We talk to our kids about that. It, it, every one of us will face physical death, maybe sooner, maybe later. I, I don't know God's time frame, but I know he has our days counted, and I know we can trust him. And that's really the next point. So suffering and death doesn't necessarily indicate divine punishment. When you see someone suffering like I did with that church planner that died so suddenly, it doesn't necessarily mean that this is God's punishment, that he's done something terrible like Ananias and Sapphira, and they're just going to drop dead right there, right? So that's one takeaway. Second, we need to acknowledge that our days are in fact numbered. Guys, this is a precious truth of scripture. God doesn't sit in our linear timeline. God created time and space, right? God sees the past, the present, and the future I, love, I can't quote it, but I love what C.S. Lewis says about this in Mere Christianity. God is outside of that, 
right? He sees past, present, and future all at once. That's why a thousand years are like a day of the Lord and a day is like a thousand years. Time does, is meaningless to him from his vantage point. And so in all of that, in all of his wisdom and knowledge, he has our days counted, numbered. God is outside of time. He knows all of this and he knows what he's doing and we can trust his timing. And please hear me on this. Even if it appears from our human perspective that a life, even our life, has been cut short. Even if we don't live to be 120 with good health to the very end. In tragedy, when it appears like life has been, some, has been cheated, has been cut short. Folks, we can still trust that God had that person. God had our days numbered. Okay? And we can trust him. He's the only one we can trust. He's the only one we can go to through, for solace and comfort when we face situations like that. Because we can't make sense out of that on our own, from our own perspective, and our own expectations, our own assumptions about how life is going to go. Third, we need to acknowledge that nothing can cut short a life if God still has plans for that person. Do you know the power of that? To say that if God has plans for you next year, you're going to make it to next year. If Jesus says we're going to go to the other shore of the Sea of Galilee, then by golly, we're going to get to the other, by God, we're going to get to the other shore. Okay? And you can take a break and take a nap in the boat because we're going to make it. We can have faith in that. But we don't know exactly what God has for us tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. We don't know how many days he's numbered off for us either. All we can do is right now in the moment, trust him and seek to be obedient to his will. All right. So if God wanted Paul to get to Rome, then no storm, no shipwreck, no venomous serpent was going to stop him from getting there. And that same principle applies to all of us as well. If we are the holy hands of Christ, then we should expect his protection as we seek to accomplish his will in this life on this earth. So now let's turn to the second part of our passage, the last part of our passage. If we are the holy hands of Christ, then we should also expect his power. If we're his hands and feet, if he's the head and we're the body, then wouldn't you expect that his power would empower us to do his will? Yes, of course. And I think any Orthodox Christian would acknowledge that. Now, how he would tease that out, we might end up with some disagreements or differences, but we all believe that if we are in Christ and the Holy Spirit of power indwells us, then we should expect to experience God's power in and through our lives. And this is exactly what Paul expected throughout all of his years of ministry. And this is what we see in verses 7 through 10. These are our last verses. In verses 7 and 8, the power to heal comes from God. Listen to this. And pay attention at the very end to how Paul goes about this. It says, Now in the neighboring parts of that place, this is the island of Malta, were, were lands belonging to the leading man of the island named Publius, who welcomed us and entertained us warmly for three days. Again, warmth, hospitality, kindness. And it happened that the father of Publius was lying in bed afflicted with a recurring fever and dysentery. And Paul went in to see him. And after he prayed, he laid his hands on him and healed him. This is not the first healing we've seen in the book of Acts. So Paul lays his hands on this sick father who's bedridden. 
to signal that God was going to work through Paul. You understand that? that? That's why he lays hands as an association. That God's going to work through me to heal you. But what does he do before he lays his hands? Paul begins with prayer to God because he knows that the power to heal must ultimately come from God. You and I do not have the power or the authority to heal. Christ has the power and the authority to heal. And if it's his will, he will use his power, work his power through us to accomplish great things, miraculous things, if it's his will. But the power comes from God. And that's why Paul begins with prayer and then lays his hands on the sick father, okay? And God heard Paul's prayer and God graciously granted healing to that man. In verses 9 through 10, the power to heal comes through God's representative. Listen to these last two verses. After this happened, the rest of the people on the island who had diseases were coming to him and being cured. It's a relatively small island. Word travels fast. Everybody on that island is coming to him to heal them with, from their diseases, to cure them. And then in verse 10 it says, They also showed us, Luke includes himself here, and this might just be the Christians, it might be the whole crew. They also showed us many honors, and when we were about to set sail, this is three months later, they supplied us with everything we needed. So after seeing Paul's miraculous deliverance from the the fangs of the serpent from death, and seeing another man delivered from disease through God's power working through Paul, these islanders, they, they began to understand that there's something special about this guy, Paul. Can you imagine? And so they respond to the display of Christ's power and authority by seeking out Christ's representative for healing and then supplying the Christians with everything that they would need for their journey out of gratitude for God's miraculous working on their island. And, and even though Luke doesn't give us many details, do you notice that here? Luke doesn't go into a lot of details about then this person was saved and these persons doubted and Paul said this about the gospel and there's really not a lot of details here. But given the context of the book of Acts, listen, Paul always gave glory to God for his gifts and abilities and for the miracles that God worked through him and around him. He always pointed to God and to Christ. And he always used things, especially physical healings, as opportunities to do what? You've got the Malta disease, the bacteria from the Maltese goat milk. You're healed. Go on your way. Is that what Paul did? No. It wasn't about that. That's not the main point. Paul always used those as opportunities to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, the gospel of spiritual healing, the gospel of finding new life in Christ, not just sustaining our old physical life until we eventually physically die, right? So the main point is not the physical healing, it's the opportunity in that context of watching Christ's power and authority at work to point to Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, who alone can provide us with spiritual healing and health and life. So like Paul, we too are the holy hands of Christ and we should expect to see demonstrations of the power of Christ for the purpose of leading others to him. Did you catch that last part? For the purpose of leading others to him. And guys, the miraculous working of God is going to look a lot of different ways. I've never um, walked through a hospital and just healed everybody or, or I've never brought someone back from the dead, okay? 
People in the Bible have. I, I absolutely believe that that's what they did. I've never done that. But can God raise someone from the dead? You bet. Can God heal everybody in a hospital? You bet. Now, I haven't seen that. But I have seen God's mir- miracles. I have seen God's supernatural deliverance in, in addiction, uh, in marriages, in all sorts of ways I've seen God work. And in he- healing. I've prayed over people. Uh, in fact, I was just talking to Eric who's not here today, uh, whose father, uh, soon? Where are you? No, he's not here. Um, whose father was miraculously healed of a heart condition in Singapore. And that's one of the things that led his family to come to faith in Christ. Like, that, this does happen. M- miracles do happen. People are miraculously healed. Now, do I personally or somebody else have this gift of going out and clearing out the hospitals? That's where we can have some discussions over coffee, Okay. But can God miraculously heal? And should we pray for miraculous healing and miraculous deliverance from addiction and miraculous healing in marriages and all sorts of other miracles? You better believe it. Because we're people of faith and we have faith in a God who can do anything. All right? So, if God has the power to heal, then why isn't everybody healed? I want to tackle that. Because listen, you flip on a couple different channels on your TV and you're going to see so-called faith healers and preachers of the so-called health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. And I'm here to tell you that everything I've seen of those camps is absolute garbage, theologically. And if you're from that camp, then let's talk, and I don't mean to offend you, but trying to make it seem as though if you just have enough faith, you will be healed. Christian science did this too with Mary Baker Eddy. She died, by the way. That really messes up their theology, okay? But my point is, is if we try and convince people that if you just have enough faith that you'll never experience disease or difficulty or hardship or even yea unto physical death, you're misleading people at that point, okay? And you also make people feel really terrible, you know? Fanny Crosby, who wrote 9,000 plus hymns, she was never cured of her blindness. Did you know that? Because God was using that sweet blind lady to do his will and accomplish his purposes, and it had nothing to do with her sight. In fact, he worked through her blindness to lead others to faith in Christ and to to bring glory to God. Physical healing is never the main point, and I want to encapsulate this by reading something from Luke's other work, his gospel. So this is the sequel to Luke's gospel. I want to read you what else Luke wrote about Jesus. In Luke 5, 23 through 24, and this is, remember the friends that bring the paralyzed man, they open up the roof and drop him down. You remember this story, right? Kids, y'all probably remember this story, right? This is what Jesus says. He says, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk, but so that you may know, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins? He said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. Folks, Christ can do anything. He has all authority, both in heaven and on the earth. And sometimes he graciously heals our physical condition so that we would know and so that others would know his power to heal our spiritual condition. That's so important. So whether or not he works through our prayers and our hands 
to physically heal others, we can certainly expect his power to be at work in, through, and around us as he miraculously delivers people from our true enemies, our real enemies, and that is the power of sin, the power of Satan, and death itself. So do we see ourselves as the holy hands of Christ? Is that how you see yourself? Perhaps we've lost sight of our purpose in this life on this earth. We've gotten so distracted or we've come up with some other identity for ourselves that has nothing to do with being the holy hands of Christ. Perhaps we think that God acts independently of us, that he's always working in the world and even around us in our context, but he's never working through us. Maybe that's how we think about God. And perhaps we think that God's power only comes to people through other better Christians whose prayers sound more theologically sophisticated or eloquent or whose hands seem so much holier than ours. If that's how you're feeling this morning, then I want to close this sermon by simply quoting from a 16th century nun by the name of Teresa of Avila. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right. Avila? Avila? Avila. She's famous. Uh, she was a Christian mystic there in Spain, started a lot of convents. And this is what she says. So if you're, if you're having trouble with your identity in Christ, if you're having trouble seeing yourself as the holy hands of Jesus Christ, I want you to listen to what she says here. She writes, Christ has no body now but yours. Now, she's not denying the physical reality of Christ's body seated at the right hand of God the Father after his ascension into heaven, which, which will come again, who will come again bodily to the earth. She's not denying that. But she says, Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes through which he looks compassion on this world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands through which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands. Yours are the feet. Yours are the eyes. Yours are his body. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. I love that. Friends, we individually and corporately are the holy hands of Christ, and we should expect his protection as we are obedient and go about accomplishing his will through his power, and we should expect his power to do whatever he wants us to do, to go wherever he wants us to go, to accomplish anything he wants to accomplish until he has nothing left for us to do in this life on this earth, and at which point he will finally, lovingly, tenderly bring us home to be with him in heaven until we return someday in resurrected glorified bodies for his kingdom of peace which will last everlastingly and speaking of having nothing left to do next week is our last sermon in the book of acts and i hope you can join us for that would you guys bow your heads and pray with me